Greetings and welcome to another episode of Facts. We've been detouring for a little bit and bringing in special guests as well as having interviews on this show with Jonathan Sheffield. Uh, we even had Gavin Ortland on doing a discussion about uh, apostolic succession and things like that. So we we took some time away from individual subjects and due to a couple of things, we're jumping into a new concept today, particularly talking about the book of Hebrews. Uh, Hebrews is without a doubt one of my favorite New Testament books. Uh, currently, I am uh, privileged at my church in Greenville, Fellowship Greenville. Uh, on Tuesday nights, I teach through the entire book of Hebrews. And right now we're going to be starting chapter 11 this week, just finished chapter 10 last week. And we're handling it a week at a time, but we're doing one chapter a week. Sometimes that's not too bad, like chapter eight. Sometimes it's awful to try to get through it in just a less than a few hours, like last week in chapter 10. But we are having a good time. And one of the things that continued to show up to me is some trends or some ideas that showed up within the text that resembled much of the apocryphal works. Uh, to me, that wasn't too shocking. I'd already recognized a few of them, but more and more came. Um, having studied the early fathers, doing a lot of my doctoral work in the first, second century fathers, seeing the data showing that they quote from the Sirach and the Wisdom, uh, or even referring to Judith or books like that was not anything new. That was very common. In fact, uh, oftentimes the apocryphal books were used as liturgy, believe it or not. Uh, most may not realize that, but they were recognized uh, in a historical as well as a helpful and an accurate account or accounts, plural, but they were not deemed as canonical. Now, this becomes a great place of contention uh, amongst our uh, friends across the aisle in the Roman Catholicism and the Roman Catholic Church, that which they decided the Council of Trent, uh, that these uh, apocryphal books were actually canon. Uh, and one of the things I'm going to do is show you today why I do not believe even by the standard of the writer of Hebrews, why they are not canon and why they could not be have canonical, why they didn't see themselves as canonical. Uh, so we'll talk about that just in a second. I'll give you a couple of minutes to tune in. I see some of you tuning in now and leaving some notes. Uh, some fun discussions that have happened. Even today, I was uh, stopping at a local coffee shop. Uh, it's called Bella Latte. Uh, they have a few locations here in Spartanburg County. A very good Christian-owned uh, coffee location. Ran into a guy named Cody. Just moved to the area from New Orleans. Um, and we had a wonderful discussion while making coffee for me on the book of Hebrews and a bunch of their New Testament reliability sent him the channel and, and a podcast so that he could listen to on his way back to New Orleans here shortly. And uh, one of the things that people love talking about with Hebrews is some of the mystery. Uh, the writer seems to be a mystery. Uh, the content at times is extremely different from the rest of the New Testament. Uh, you don't believe me, just go into chapter number nine, look at chapter eight, look at the order of Melchizedek. Uh, very unique to its own self, not like any of the other writings of the scripture. The way it parallels itself as a historical, yet a theological, and at times a philosophical writing is very, very unique from many of the other epistles. And so one of the things that I decided to do is look at this idea because it, it came up numerous times in class 
or excuse me, I should say after class through email. And others have asked this question before, and that is, do the New Testament writers utilize the Apocrypha? Um, and one of the things that blew me away when I was trained all my life, uh, almost, especially in academic training earlier on, is that the Apocrypha was never used by Jesus or the apostles. And then you get into the book of James and you see where that's not true. You get in the book of Jude and you see that's not true. You get in the book of Second Peter and you see that's not true. And then you get into Hebrews, you see that's not true again. I'm constantly astonished at how regularly the New Testament did utilize the Apocrypha, just like the early church fathers did as well. And we can find them being utilized in the earliest documents that Didache uses the Apocrypha. First Clement referenced the Apocrypha. Um, there are multiple places where we can go back and say, yes, the apocryphal works was here. Um, Polycarp's epistle, the Philippians references one time to the apocryphal work. So you do see a early usage of it, not just outside of the new Testament, but even in the new Testament itself. And so what do we need to do about this? And, and this is something I think that we need to consider when we're discussing this subject, because one of the things I have found in my time of dealing with canonical text, and whether it's speaking at a conference or whether it's doing a show or a debate, is that there's two extremes on this. And one of the things I want to do before we jump into this is eliminate these extremes. The first extreme is, is all apocryphal works are treated equal. Um, I think it's a bad approach. Not all apocryphal books are equal. There are different types of apocryphal works. The pseudo-apocryphal works. You have um, heretical apocryphal works. Uh, one of the things that Eusebius attempted to do uh, in the fourth century was to distinguish the different types of books. He recognized that there were Bible uh, bo books of our Bible that were absolutely accepted and received by the churches throughout the time and areas of the apostolic age and further. And up to his point, he recognized books that he listed as received and never disputed. Uh, that would be the Gospels and Acts and Romans and many of Paul's epistles. And then he had another category of books that he saw as received by the churches as authentic, but they were questioned or that they were uh, really scrutinized at times or worried. Some churches may have worried about them or had some negative remarks about them. And those are books like Second Peter and Jude and Second John, Third John, and even at times Revelation. There were books that were received, but there was some dispute amongst their writings or the original author behind them. But overall, they were received as the churches, uh, even if there was some dispute. And then he gave another category of books that were, uh, they, they were accepted to the churches in a way of accuracy or semi-accurate, but that they were not canonical. They were not seen as inspired texts or traced to the apostles themselves. And uh, he lists books like that, the Shepherd of Hermas, the Didache, or the Teaching of the Twelve, and, and, and First Clement, and others were read and utilized by the church, but they were seen as good books and helpful. The Epistle of Barnabas was another one. That, but these were not heretical texts. And then he did have a category for heretical writings, such as the Gospel of Thomas or the Gospel of Truth. Many of these Gnostic texts that made themselves in uh, to the tradition that I did uh, a couple of videos on already, the Gospel of Mary, the Gospel of Peter, the Gospel of Thomas. And we see that there was a, a category where these books were seen as heretical. So when we say apocryphal works, we do not need to fall into the faulty thinking of believing that all these belong in the same category because some were orthodox and some were heretical. 
And so when I'm talking about the apocryphal today, I'm talking about the books that were a part of the Greek Septuagint, uh, the Greek translation of the Hebrew done uh, about 300 years before Christ or so. And in there, there was an attachment of books like Tobit and the Sirach and Judith and the Wisdom of Solomon and 1st, 2nd Maccabees. These are the books that I'm talking about that were seen as historically reliable and others that have, seem to be referenced in the New Testament. It appears very clearly that Jude was familiar with 1st Enoch. Uh, Peter was obviously on his statements very much interested in the teachings of 1st Enoch. But these texts were always seen in their proper place. And this is where the other extreme is. So the first extreme is we treat the apocryphal books as unimportant or we just categorically waste them with heretical writings when they're not. The other extreme is we disregard them altogether uh, in, in that we do not utilize them at all. We don't need them. These are Those are extremes. But the other extreme is what the Council of Trent did in the 1500s. And that is they recognize them as canonical. Um, and this was a response to the Reformation. I believe the Reformation once more did a little bit of harm to some of this, but in a sense, the Council of Trent was responding to the Protestant Reformation. And they received these books as canonical, which, oddly enough, the originator of their Vulgate, which was Jerome, did not receive these books as canonical. And we don't have time in today's session to go through this, um, I have had this discussion on other channels. I've had this discussion in interviews. Uh, I've debated this subject before reading some of Jerome's words because some of the Catholics will say, well, no, no, Jerome changed his mind about that. And it's like, no, uh, no, he, you want him to change his mind, but uh, he did not change his mind on these issues. But when it comes to the writings of Hebrews, people get a little bit nervous. And uh, I, I understand why. Um it makes us uncomfortable to believe that the New Testament writers who were dependent upon the Holy Spirit to write the scriptures would become dependent or utilize something that is not before them as God breathed. Like we have no problem with Hebrews quoting the Psalms, which he does all the time. Uh, we have no problem with him quoting Isaiah or major reference points into the book of Jeremiah as he does in chapter nine. We, we don't mind that. We don't mind it when he goes back and utilizes the law and, and, and the prophets going into the Torah, discussing things that were written of in Deuteronomy or going back to the psalmist of David and the prophecies that were explored there in that psalm. We don't have a problem with that. But when they utilize books like the Wisdom of Solomon or the Sirach, we immediately cringe and think, well, there's, there's a problem here. Why is he utilizing a book? Like that, why is he utilizing these books that are not inspired? And the answer that I will give generally, so we don't spend too much time here, is that all truth is God's truth. Everything that we see in the universe, every discovery that is made is God's truth. Christianity does not have a patent on God's truth. When God created a universe and all that is in it, all of its beauty, all of its majesty, he left his fingerprints in every place. And I believe that if we are true believers in, in Jehovah God who created the heaven and the earth and everything that is in it, in those fingerprints, we can find the handiwork and truth of God in creation, looking at the sky, looking at the stars, the moon the galaxies, the planets. We can see them in history. 
leaving his fingerprints in the realms of men throughout the ages, in kingdoms, both those that worshipped him and obeyed him and those who defied him or did not know of his existence. It is those things that we can go through history and see the handiwork and the provision and the providence of God. I also believe we can find him in the sciences as well. I believe we can find him in philosophy. I think we can find him in the realms of wisdom. Christianity does not have a patent on truth so that when something is discovered, a dimension, or when we see something new on the moons on a pl- outside of a planet, or we find a new planet, or we explore the galaxy because a Christian didn't find it, it doesn't make it not true. Just because a Christian doesn't explore it and find it doesn't mean that it's null and void. Christianity does not have a patent on truth. God has a patent on truth. All truth belongs to God. And sometimes unbelievers beat believers to the punch and find things. There's things in life that people learn as unbelievers that are wisdom that believers don't even practice. And it's not because they invented that wisdom or that they were creative. It's that God's wisdom has revealed itself in many ways. And an unbeliever discovered something of God's wisdom. And we see in these other texts that there are truths that are not fully established in Scripture or they're established in other ways in Scripture, but they're truths worth noting because God did something in a generation and revealed himself in that generation. And that's what I want to talk to you about today in these apocryphal works that even though they're not God-breathed or theanustas, but they are, in a sense, there are elements enough worthy of truth that the biblical writers would utilize these texts and make a point of truth with them. Because all truth is God's truth, and not everything God has revealed in his universe is revealed in his word, though what we have in God's word is sufficient. What we have God's word is our our basis of faith and practice, and it is our final authority for those things. But I tell people this all the time, and and I heard this statement when I was uh, in college and things like that. Perhaps you've heard these words as well, and that is all of life's questions can be answered in Scripture. Well, no, 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 they can't. All of life's questions that pertain to life and godliness and your need for sanctification uh, can be found in Scripture. The sufficiency of the walk of faith is found in Scripture, but not all of life's questions are answered in Scripture. Um, the Bible does not tell us how far the earth is from the sun. The Bible does not tell us how many planets are in our solar system. The Bible doesn't tell us how deep the furthest parts of the seas are. It doesn't give us a foot or inch dimension. It doesn't give us a mile dimension. Um, it doesn't even give us uh, the grand scheme of your life and how you like where you should choose to go to dinner tonight. Like the Bible does not tell you every answer you would like to know. It gives you the answers you need to know. And it gives you everything that you need that pertains to life and godliness so that you can live a life of faith and obedience and please God. It is sufficient for that. But where the Bible speaks, it is our final authority over science. It is our final authority over history. It is our final authority over archaeology and philosophy and wisdom, and all those things that come into being. But that is not an exhaustive list of truth that God has left in the universe with the fingerprint of creation. God's truth can be found in other places. And that is not part of the struggle that I have anymore with texts like the Apocryphal Works, because I do believe there are historical realities. 
and wisdom in a lot of those texts. And so did the early churches as well. So with that being said, we've we've covered the extremes. Let's talk about the writer of Hebrews. Did he believe, and this is something I actually had a discussion with on Facebook just the other day, did the writer of Hebrews believe the apocryphal books were canonical? Well, let's take him at his word, and what does he believe it means to have a Bible that is breathed by God? Um, in chapter 1, the very first words, he says this, Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke, that is, Theos Lelesos, Theos Lelesos, God uttered words to our fathers by the prophets. And in these last days, he spoke to us by his son. Now, most of the time when I'm asked to do a discussion on canonical texts, I use this verse, and many of you have maybe heard me use it before, and I typically focus on verse 2 because I get invited to talk about the New Testament more than the Old, which I'm starting to get bothered by. I'd like to talk about the Old Testament too, but here we are again talking about the New. But let's focus on verse 1 there. God at many times and in many ways, he spoke to the fathers in the past by the prophets. The qualification that the writer of Hebrews establishes from the beginning is that if we want to know what God said, we have to go to the prophets. And now with that being said, he recognizes that canonical texts have an authentic source, a place that can be authentic a place that can be validated, and that is the words of the prophets. Now, does that qualify, when we're talking about this, these texts like the Apocrypha that he does utilize, and we'll see examples of in a minute, but did he see them as prophetic? Well, no, because he would have recognized the internal evidence of those books, just like he does in the New Testament writers when he makes claims like this. For example, when you're in Hebrews, he talks about the Holy Spirit revealing himself in scripture. Uh, and he says, as David said, today, do not harden your hearts. He recognized that David was the writer and attributed the writing to him. And then in the very next chapter, from chapter three to chapter four, he says, the spirit says today, if you do not harden your hearts. One chapter, he's attributing those words to David. And the next chapter, he's attributing them to the Holy Spirit, recognizing that the scripture was both of God, words of the Holy Spirit, and words of a man. It's it's that divine beauty of inspiration, that it is a divine book, but a human book. And the writer was able to distinguish that it was both the human word and the Holy Spirit's word. He never gives that kind of attribute to these other texts that he seems to allude to or give that kind of praise for. And the reason for that is, is because he would have recognized something about these apocryphal books that we wish our Roman Catholic friends perhaps would tune in on as well. And that is these books recognized they were not written by prophets. Let me give you examples of this. In 1 Maccabees chapter number 9, you have the words of this text saying, There was great tribulation in Israel, the like of which had not been since the time the prophets ceased to appear among them. So the writer of Maccabees is instantly recognizing that there was persecution in Israel, and it was not like anything that had been seen since the prophets ceased to appear amongst the people of Israel. What does that mean? That means that he recognized there were no prophets in their day. 
later on in chapter 14, verse 41 of 1 Maccabees, it says, And that the Jews and their priests had consented that Simon, that is Simon Maccabeus, should be their prince and a high priest forever until there should arise a faithful prophet. There was a situation that encountered the Maccabean family. The priest line was was on a thread. It was hanging by a thread. And Judas Maccabeus and his son, Simon here, was apparently appointed to a position where he was both priest and prince, similar to what they were anticipating the coming of, of a Messiah after the order of Melchizedek, if you would, Psalm 110, waiting for that fulfillment that we see in the book of Hebrews. And he was going to hold that position until a faithful prophet, which they were waiting for the prophet that was to come prophesied of by Malachi. They recognized that that prophet had not come and the prophets were gone. They had ceased. There were no prophets. And that they even temporarily placed one of the Maccabees' children, uh, Simon Maccabeus, in a position of priest as well as a prince waiting for the prophets to come back or a faithful prophet to arise amongst the people. Meaning in the time of 1 Maccabees, they recognized prophecy had ceased. There were no prophets. Therefore, God was not speaking through 1 Maccabees or this era through inspiration. There were no prophets. 2 Maccabees reiterates similar uh, principles. It says, in these things, in 2 Maccabees 13 through 14, these things were set down in the memoirs and commentaries of Nehemiah and how he made a library and gathered together out of the countries the books both of the prophets and David and the epistles of the kings and concerning the holy gifts. In this like manner, Judas also gathered together Judas Maccabeus. It's one of the other brothers. Uh, or that, excuse me, that's, that, that is the main Maccabeus there. And, and one of the things that you see here is quite fascinating. He also, like Nehemiah did in the times of persecution when the books and the scripts were ready to be removed or destroyed, preserved them in libraries, protected them from destruction. Nehemiah did it when they were in the process of rebuilding. He built a library, and in that library came books of the prophets and David and the epistles of the kings, along with the holy gifts. So what did Judas Maccabeus did? Same exact thing, gathered together all such things as were lost by the war we had and they are in our possession. And what he's telling you is the prophets and all the books he just listed, the kings, were set into a library and preserved. They did not recognize their writing in 2 Maccabees when this writer is saying they're in our possession, that he was writing a new work, but rather they had preserved and protected the prophetic documents, those that were scripture and utilized and lived by by those people. They separated themselves in the writings from the prophetic works or the scriptural writings that had been passed on to them, similar to the way Nehemiah did in his day. The Talmud also gives us indicators of this time uh, that there were no more prophets in this day. In fact, it says this, um, Abba said uh, the re that refers to the Bathkol as we are taught in the following Baratha, with the death of the last prophets, catch it, Catch it with the death of the last prophets, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. The prophetic spirit was withdrawn from Israel. They recognized in this era when all the apocryphal books were established and written that the last prophets were Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, 
and that the spirit of prophecy had been withdrawn from Israel. That is very consistent with what we just read from 1st Maccabees and 2nd Maccabees. Also later in the Talmud, it says this, and thus the book of Daniel, which was in exile, thus the scroll of Esther and of the 12 of those prophecies were the minor, the prophets did not write it together, but rather each wrote their own book. And Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi came and saw that the Holy Spirit was withdrawing and that they were the last prophets. And in this Talmud, we recognize in the Rashi of Bava Batra, in 15.2.5, you see one of the most extraordinary things that he states that the writers, Malachi and Jeremiah, excuse me, Zachariah, Malachi and Haggai, they saw themselves as the last prophets. The spirit was withdrawing himself from, from prophecy. <clears throat> Naturally, that would make sense for Malachi, particularly who promised a prophet to come like Elijah. And so he recognized that until that prophet came, that it was possible that he was the last one there. And the Talmud actually references and recognizes that as well, along with 1st, 2nd Maccabees. Another book in that era is 2nd Baruch. 2nd Baruch 85, 1 and 3 says this, Further know that our fathers in former times and in former generations had helpers. Boy, that sounds awfully familiar. Our fathers at former times and former generations, similar to what the writer of Hebrews is establishing here, had helpers, righteous prophets and Kodesh men, but now the righteous have been assembled and the prophets are sleeping. The writer of 2 Baruch recognized that God used by his power and spirit the, the carry, those that carried his message, the prophets, and they were dead at that time. They were asleep. They were no longer in the world. There were no prophets writing in this day. So even the writer of 2 Baruch and that same era recognized we are without a prophet. They're all saying the same thing. And there's other other examples of this too. We just don't have time. But you get the point that I'm making is that the writers of these apocryphal works recognize the prophets are dead. The spirit of prophecy has ceased. It was taken out until the prophet should come. They were electing Simon Maccabeus to be a prince and a priest until a faithful prophet should arise. They're recognizing the prophets died and were no longer around in their day, and that it ended with, with Malachi. I mean, they recognize this in their own writings. So naturally, when the writer of Hebrews in chapter 1 says, God spoke to us, God uttered words through the prophets to our fathers, the only way the writer of Hebrews would have seen the, any work to be of God is if it qualified under the prophetic nature of a prophet. And the writings of the apocryphal books instantly recognize themselves not to be prophets. So therefore, I would conclude, if we're following consistency of the writer of Hebrews, he didn't recognize these inspired texts as much as they didn't recognize themselves as inspired text. But that does not mean they're unimportant. That doesn't mean the writer of Hebrews disregarded them. In fact, he utilized them. And that's where we come into our section here. In chapter 1, verse 3, we have a part of these statements, seven realities of Christ, who he is, his essence, his purpose, his fulfillment. And there's things that are said about him. <clears throat> One of them being that he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, verse three. And many have recognized this. In fact, I think it was just the other day, it might've been Saturday. It was Friday or Saturday. I received a message on Facebook asking me uh, if, I believed he has alluded to the wisdom of Solomon, which 
I found it really interesting. The question was asked. He sent me the both the Greek text of the women, uh, wisdom of Solomon along with Hebrews and asked me for some of the word comparisons that were similar and some the same and asked me if I thought that he was reflecting or utilizing the teaching or statement in the wisdom of Solomon 725 through 726. And I naturally and had already done my notes on that a few months ago, back in October. And I said, yeah, I do. Absolutely. I believe he's recognizing a statement in the wisdom of Solomon. For example, it says this, a breadth of the power of God and a pure reflection of the almighty, a reflection of eternal light, an unspotted mirror of the working of God. I do believe it is very possible that the the writer of Hebrews recognized this statement about Christ being the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint being that of the unspotted mirror or the reflection or the all the pure reflection of the almighty in his eternal light it seems to me that that concept that he's referring to Christ as the finality of of his re, it's that one of those seven realities of Christ is one that was established in the apocryphal work of the wisdom of Solomon. It's very possible uh, to consider that. In chapter one, again, verse seven, it states this. And of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers fire, which I have no problem looking at that and going, you know what, that that sounds like the Psalms. Uh, it sounds like Psalm 104. It doesn't bother me the least. But that that is echoed also in other places, uh, that angels are to be considered uh, wind and fire in their look or their expression. Uh, consider this in 4th Ezra. Now, 4th Ezra is considered 2nd Esdras in, in the uh, Septuagint. Remember, there's technically six Ezras. Two are considered canonical. Uh, we would call those Ezra and Nehemiah. Um, and the others are, are apocryphal, as we stated. And four are taken into consideration on a serious level of some level of accuracy. The last two are not. Um, what we look at in this text, <clears throat> it says in fourth Ezra or second Esdras 8:21, before whole host of heaven stand trembling, they whose service takes the form of wind and fire. Uh, and let me read it to you again in Hebrews. Remember this, he says, he says, let all God's angels worship him of the angels. He says, makes his angels winds and his ministers or his servants, a flame of fire. Now, again, I do believe that Psalm 104 has some validity here because it says in Psalm 104 verse four, he makes his messengers winds and his ministering spirit, a flaming fire. So I, I, I do recognize the parallel there, but this is reflected on and expressed in other places, like in second Esdras, where it says the angels stand trembling as those who are in his service taking form of wind and fire. Now, remember something here. If you're talking about the Septuagint, which I believe, and I think anybody who's serious in scholarship recognizes, and we do know there are different variant forms of the Greek text. There's not like one established one. There are a variety of layouts of Greek text, but as a whole, there was a Septuagint that was being utilized. And if the writer of Hebrews is quoting, as he does all the time, the Old Testament from the Greek translation of the Hebrew, which next week we will talk about some of the differences between the Greek and the Hebrew and how he utilized the Greek over our Hebrew Masoretic text today, which will be a fun discussion for next uh, session we do together. 
um, did a writer of Hebrews use the Septuagint over Hebrew readings, which were very different and making Christological theology arguments from the Christological and theological arguments from those variants. Yeah, he did. Uh, we'll talk about that one. That'll be in the next session. But with that being said, he used the Septuagint and the Septuagint would have had these books. And naturally, if he had these books, he would have recognized readings, writings, statements as well within them as he did the rest of the Old Testament. But we see similarities and comparisons here uh, where it appears he was utilizing or influenced by the thinking and teaching of some of these apocryphal works. Another example is in chapter 2, verse 14, we have in the text, since therefore the children shared flesh and blood, he himself <coughs> likewise partook of the same thing, and that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. Death has been defeated here in order to disarm the one who holds the power of death. That is the devil. It could be here as well that the writer was alluding to, once again, the wisdom of Solomon. The wisdom of Solomon, chapter 2, verse 23, says this. God created man for incorruption and made him in the image of his own eternity. But through the devil's envy, death entered the world. And those who belong to his party, that is the party of death, experience it. Again, we see this concept where the writer of Hebrews is saying that people were a, are part of the death that was given to them. They are enslaved to it. They're under the power of it. And that power is reigned by the devil himself. But they have been disarmed from this. Satan's power has been defeated by this. And it could be, again, that he's alluding to the wisdom literature of Solomon where God created man in one way, to be incorruptible. But the man that he made in his own image became slaves to death because through Satan's envy and power, he's put him there because of sin. And those that belong to the devil are experiencing death. But once that power and that bond of death is broken, you're brought back to life. You are now a part of the party of God's living spirit through the resurrection of his living son under the hand of the living God. And therefore, I think that it could be, once again, that he's alluding to this. Another thing is he, one of the most confusing things about the writer of Hebrews, and one of the most disappointing that most people have about him is that when we get to Melchizedek, we're like, who is this Melchizedek guy? And we hope that the writer of Hebrews would actually give us clarity. Like, hey, this is who he is. Um, this is who I believe. No, that's not what happens at all. One of the most extraordinary things that takes place is that the writer of Hebrews does not establish who Melchizedek was, but there were floating philosophies around or ideas or guesses or concepts or educated opinion out there of who Melchizedek was. And one of the most amazing things is the writer of Hebrews doesn't affirm any of them. In fact, he takes some of the most popular opinions about Melchizedek and utilizes even those opinions and still points to the person of Christ through every possible option that could be Melchizedek. He doesn't one minute it's like, oh, he's saying he's the he's he's the pre-incarnate Christ, not because of this. Or then, oh, well, then he's saying that he's a, an angel or something like that. Nope, nope, because of this. Oh, well, then he's saying that he's just some illusion. Well, no, no, because of this. And then you start looking at Melchizedek, it's like it doesn't look like the writer of Hebrews has a consistent opinion about the person Melchizedek. And what I believe is taking place is he actually takes 
the opinions of his day about Melchizedek. And within the opinions of Melchizedek, he establishes something beautiful. He can take any popular opinion of him and still point to Christ as being the, the priest and the king and the fulfillment of Psalm 110 after the order of Melchizedek, regardless of your opinion. And here's some of the opinions that were in the day, just, just to kind of give you an idea. Uh, he was an angelic redeemer. He was a Canaanite priest king. Another name for Noah's son, Shem, which was a little less popular. A manifestation of the Logos, which Philo uh, pretty much carried that concept. The Holy Spirit, which is another minor. But uh, some believed he was an end-time priest, which we'll talk about that one in a minute. Or the popular and very still popular, the pre-incarnate Christ. And we know because of the Dead Sea Scrolls as well that there were popular opinions about Melchizedek. Now, what you might find interesting is Melchizedek is rarely talked about in Scripture. Outside of the writer of Hebrews, the New Testament doesn't use him as a reference at all. Outside of Psalm 110, reflecting on the tithing and the, the order of Melchizedek and who he was following the pattern of Genesis, you don't have Melchizedek in the rest of the scripture. There's actually more idea and concept and commentary about Melchizedek in the apocryphal works than in the canonical works. And we notice this as we discover some of the readings in the Dead Sea Scrolls, such as 11Q Melchizedek, which was found in Cave 11 and published around the 1960s. I think it was around 1965. It was written in three columns of Hebrew sometime between the first century BC and the first century AD, probably around 50 to 50, somewhere in that timeline. Somewhere in that timeline. And in this, it gives us quite an impressive view of Melchizedek. For example, it follows the history of the times that are divided into Jubilees. And this was in the 10th period of Jubilee. And Melchizedek in this story of the Dead Sea Scroll appears from heaven as a great general who's ready to destroy his enemies with a heavenly army behind him, visibly representative of God and redeeming the people of God who are under distress and under persecution. You instantly read that and you go, boy, that sounds like the second coming of Christ. He appears from heaven as a great general with a host and fights and destroys the enemies of God, redeems and rescues his people, representing the physical appearance of God. That sounds like Christ. And by the way, th th again, this is before the book of Hebrews was written. So this is a popular opinion in the writer of Hebrews' day. He makes an appearance, oddly enough, on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, thus indicating he was not only a king and a warrior who rescued his people, but a priest who redeemed them on the Day of Atonement. Which, I mean, put yourself in this position. This document of Melchizedek that was found in the caves of the Dead Sea Scrolls they were already depicting what Messiah or an order of Melchizedek would look like. And they were reflecting on this guy in Genesis and Psalm 110, before Hebrews was written, <clears throat> before Christ died and was buried and resurrected and fulfilled the work of Melchizedek as both priest and king, the one who is seated at the right hand, your throne is given 
and that his enemies would be his footstool, uh, but that he would also be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, before the fulfillment of both priest and king. Commentators in the Dead Sea were already trying to anticipate what it would look like, and they came up with Melchizedek returns on the Day of Atonement, redeems his people from sin, and he's a warrior, a king, a prince, on behalf of a visible image of God. I would say they were pretty close to predicting what a figure of Christ would be, believing that be um, Melchizedek. By the way, it's interesting as well, in that document, he is referred to as Elohim or El, which also Elohim does not limit itself just to Jehovah God. It could be uh, a reference to Elohim's that lesser gods as well, but that, that we see in this document as well. These are popular opinions that come from extra biblical texts like the Dead Sea Scrolls, but also in Second Enoch, Melchizedek is referenced in the apocryphal works. Uh, Ner, the son, or excuse me, the brother of Noah, is married to Sopinim, which was a woman who was barren or childless. And she became pregnant apart from sexual relations. And again, this is Second Enoch. I'm not saying it's true. Hear me out. I'm not saying these things are absolutely true, but these are the opinions. These are the apocryphal opinions of the day. She's barren. She has pregnancy apart from sexual relations. Do you not find that interesting already, given the fact that Christ was born of a virgin? But again, this is going back to Noah's day, but this concept is there. This concept is already there before Christ. She dies before giving birth, but a son emerges from her womb, fully developed with the badge of priesthood on his chest. Gabriel takes Melchizedek to heaven, whence he will return after the flood, reestablishing the priesthood, going back to the time of Abraham when Abraham tithed him. Now, is that true? Probably not. Probably not at all. But these are the opinions. And the writer of Hebrews, knowing the opinions, having referenced these other biblical texts and extra biblical texts, did not choose to make a stand and say he's the pre-incarnate Christ. He's a redeeming angel. He was. He didn't do that. Rather, he took all of what it appears, if you look at how he expressed him, similar features we find in these other uh, extra-biblical texts, and he utilizes each position and still makes Christ the champion, pointing any avenue of opinion about Melchizedek to. It doesn't matter. Melchizedek was the pointer, not the point. Melchizedek was pointing to Christ. In fact, if you go to our our text in the book of Hebrews, it states that he was actually imitating the son of God. He was patterning himself after the son of God. And then the son of God in return, patterned himself after the order of Melchizedek. So we instantly say, well, yeah, Jesus patterned himself after the order of Melchizedek. That's what the writer of Hebrews says. Yes. But the writer of Hebrews didn't want you to miss the fact that Melchizedek patterned himself after the son of God. It's circular. It's not a straight line. It starts with the Son of God, and it ends with the Son of God, and Melchizedek is something in between. The first uh, is something in between the pre-incarnate state of who God was through the person of, of Jesus, the second part of the Godhead, and he is also, in his incarnation, fully reflective of the priesthood, not of the Levites, or not of the priesthood of David only, but rather a pattern of Melchizedek, who is both priest and king, Fulfilling the prophecy of Psalm 110, one of the which is the most quoted psalm in the entire New Testament. So we see this idea. Uh, we see these nuances in these apocryphal works that the writer of Hebrews seems to borrow, but yet not make them the point or make Melchizedek the point, but make Christ the point. 
and he does it through any means and opinion. This is why I believe it is not established a position on who Melchizedek was. Another idea here that I believe that the writer uh, would have been familiar with in the Septuagint using the apocryphal books is in chapter 7, verse 22. He says that Jesus is the guarantee of a better covenant. And the word is anguas, and an anguas is not used elsewhere in the New Testament. This word also, though, is used throughout the apocryphal works. It's used in the Septuagint three times, twice in the Sirach 29, 15, and it is also used once in 2 Maccabees 10, 28. So was he influenced by this? Because the idea behind the word is a legal word. It's legal documentation, and it's the idea of a guarantor. The anguas is the one who carries the heavier responsibility. He's held accountable to fulfill the responsibilities of a promise. His role is greater than the mediator, which he compares to in chapter 8, verse 6 of the Old Covenant. And he's reaffirming the fact what Paul did in Galatians 3.19 is that the Old Covenant had a mediator, but not a guarantor, not somebody to guarantee the wording, the rights, the privileges, and the promises. But the New Covenant does. But this terminology of a guarantor, the anguas, is not used in any other uh, text of the New Testament, it is a term that seems to be used regularly in these apocryphal works of the Septuagint. Another place I want to go to, and then we'll actually take some questions here. Uh, and for the sake of time, uh, we're doing pretty well. Chapter 11, and, and I'll stop in chapter 11. There's a few more, but for the sake of time, we won't go that far. Um, in chapter 11, verses 1 through 3, you have established that faith is a substance of things hoped for. It's the evidence of things not seen. And then he gives us what we have called the hall of faith. And in that hall of faith, he goes through names. He goes through uh, Abel. He goes through Enoch. He goes through Abraham, Moses, Noah, all these names that he goes down all the way down to prophets who are without name, but description. And in this, it seems to me that he is following the pattern of other places like second Maccabees, but, particularly the Sirach, Sirach 44. Sirach 44, and for multiple chapters, does the same thing, which precedes the writing of Hebrews. For example, in Sirach 44, 1, it says, Let us now praise famous men and our fathers that begat us. And it goes through a multitude of lists. For example, it talks about Enoch. It talks about Noah. It talks about Abraham. talks about Moses. talks about jo uh, Jacob. Sound familiar? These are in the by faiths as well. There are some names in there that are not in Hebrews 11. Aaron, Phineas, uh, Joshua is mentioned there, but uh, Caleb is not mentioned in Hebrews 11. The judges are mentioned uh, as they are in the writings of Hebrews. Samuel is mentioned just as Hebrews. David is mentioned just like Hebrews. Nathan's mentioned who's not mentioned in Hebrews. Solomon is mentioned, but as he's not mentioned in Hebrews, but he is in the Sirach, and, and, and on and on the list goes. It does a similar thing. So what the writer of Hebrews was doing was not unique to itself. In fact, I believe he's following the pattern of the Sirach, doing a similar thing, giving the praise for famous men and the fathers that begat us, as the Sirach said to do. Seems to me it was very much influenced. Later in that same chapter, we find this awfully unique. Um, he makes the statement in chapter... 11 verse 35. I believe it's verse 35. He says, others were tortured to death. He talks about their sacrifice and their martyrdoms, if you would, refusing to accept deliverance 
in order to attain a better resurrection. Now, who are these people? Now, he mentions women who received their children back from the dead, going back to the stories of Elijah and Elisha, resurrecting a daughter and a son. But these people did not receive their children back from the dead because they were going to obtain a better resurrection. Now, we don't find any stories like this in the Old Testament. I believe what he's alluding to is the book of 2 Maccabees, and there's quite a few scholars that would affirm this pretty strongly. In the story of 2 Maccabees chapter 7, you have a woman with seven sons. Her sons were one by one martyred in front of her. Uh, their toes and their fingers were chopped off. They were tortured to the death because of their commitment to the law of God. And in this, one of the children says this in 2 Maccabees 7, 9, to the persecutor through the king that was doing this to them, you accursed wretch, you dismiss us from this present life, but the king of the universe will raise us up to an everlasting renewal of life because we have died for his laws. The man who is in his death sentence, who's being tortured, stated this very clearly, you've dismissed us from this present life, but the king of the universe is going to resurrect us to a new and better life for dying for his truth. And that is exactly what the writer of Hebrews said happened. People were tortured to death, refusing to accept deliverance in order to obtain a better resurrection. The mother of her seven sons had other statements made there by her children as well. For example, later in that chapter, verse 14, one says, one cannot but choose to die at the hands of men and to cherish the hope that God gives of being raised again by him. But for you, talking to those who are the oppressors, there will be no resurrection to life. One cannot but choose to die at the hands of men and to cherish the hope that God gives resurrection again. I believe that the story there that the writer of Hebrews is referring to, others were tortured to death and refusing deliverance to receive and obtain a better resurrection. I think he's talking particularly about stories like that in 2 Maccabees, where these seven men were destroyed and killed in front of their mother. And it could be the case. But with that being said, what we see here, and there's and there's others as well, but for the sake of time, we, we're winding down into within 10 minutes. I do believe that the writer of Hebrews did utilize the apocryphal works, and I have no problem with him doing that. It doesn't bother me as all. Um, so I really do believe that we should consider these books. We shouldn't throw them out. No, they're not scripture. I don't think the writer of Hebrews saw them that way either, but they were utilized and seen as important. All right, let's jump into some of the comments, see what we got down here. We have about nine minutes. Uh, Clark says, as Michael Heiser says, the Jews of the Second Temple Judaism, including the writer of the Hebrews, actually read books. Yeah, um, naturally, they're going to be reading other works. They didn't just read the Old Testament. They would have read other books as well. Um, to me, that makes perfect sense. They were educated. And that makes sense uh, to whom I believe the writer of Hebrews is as well. Uh, let's see. Clark says, Hebrews writing just does not cite the Apocrypha references as inspired scripture. Well, that, that is exactly the point. 
Um, and if you missed the earlier stages of that, Clark, I mentioned how he had no problem stating when he quoted the Psalm from David, he said, David said today, uh, do not harden your hearts. Uh, then he quotes in the very next chapter from chapter three to chapter four, the Holy Spirit says today, if you do not harden your heart. So you have David, you have the Holy Spirit, both speaking the same words. How is that possible? Because if it's inspired, it's by the Spirit using a man to say it. So you have a divine and a human element. You don't see that like you said here. In fact, they're almost ambiguous. I would call them indirect quotes or indirect influencers um, or even potential uh, in many of these cases, we can't say for certainty, but he's very clear when the Holy Spirit's speaking at times uh, in the scriptures and quoting them as scripture. So I agree with you. And based on the qualifiers that I mentioned earlier in chapter number one, it had to be written by the prophets. And these writings admitted that they did not have prophets in their day, that they were dead, and that the last of the prophets were Zechariah, Haggai, Malachi, and that they were waiting for a faithful prophet to come. So naturally, I would agree with that. Um, when it comes to this very, very subject. Uh, let's see. Uh, there's a, another comment here. I was trying to pull up and I don't want to lose this. Um, Enoch is an ap apocryphal book. It is not in the apocryphal books when it comes to uh, the lineup in the Roman Catholic Bible. It is apocryphal in the sense that it is a extra biblical text. Uh, again, that goes back to categories. When we talk about the apocrypha, we're typically talking about the books that I mentioned earlier that are in the, the Roman Catholic canon that was established by Trent, Tobit, the Sirach, Wisdom, 1st, 2nd Maccabees, Judith, etc. When we're talking about those books, that's what we say is the Apocrypha, but they're not the only Apocryphal books. The first, there's four Enochs, two of which are more accepted than the others, but those books are seen as Apocryphal books. And so, yeah, I mean, the writings of Enoch were not a part of that section in the Septuagint, but they were written in the same time. And that's what needs to be understood. The writings of first and second Enoch are around the same time. Same thing with second Baruch. It's apocryphal and it's around the same time. These works were done in that era, that gap between uh, the coming of Christ and the ending of the prophets through Malachi, as well as the finishing and completion of Second Chronicles, that gap, these books were written. And that includes First, Second Enoch, that includes First, Second Baruch, that includes the apocryphal books that we're talking about. So yes, there were extra biblical texts written at that time. They're referred to as apocryphal books. Uh, and so yes, you're right. As you said, I thought it wasn't. It, it, it's not in that selected group. group uh, just to clarify uh, the statement here. Um, Nick say, says this, and, and we can possibly close out with these. It is a consideration that the post book of Hebrews Septuagint added such readings that merely give an appearance of being used in Hebrews, but instead copies from Hebrews and those texts. Uh, yeah, I don't buy that at all. In fact, I don't think anybody in serious scholarship even considers the notion as some do in that group there that the, the Septuagint was more of what we have today as established later after the time of the New Testament writings. I don't buy that at all. We have Old Testament text from the Dead Sea Scrolls in Greek, and we have other uh, older manuscripts of Greek that align with that um, Septuagint form that we're talking about that's more newly established. It's clear, just like in our New Testament, you have an initial text and you have transmission of that initial text 
And when we look at them, yes, there are differences, but the substance of them are not. So there are variant forms in the Septuagint, just like there are variant forms in the New Testament text, but they do not equal a different book. Like, oh, well, the Septuagint that was in the BC era is not like the Septuagint that we have today, when all we have to do is take many of the New Testament, excuse me, the Old Testament uh, Greek readings that are even found in the Dead Sea and compare them to the Septuagint that is established for today. And we find almost like we do in the New Testament, very, very close and almost the same. So I, I, I don't buy into this theory, this idea that the the Hebrews wasn't quoting the Septuagint. The Septuagint was established after Hebrews. So they were actually correcting themselves off of Hebrews. There's a proof of that. There's no evidence of that. That's a hypothesis. Nobody in serious scholarship believes that. Nobody takes that perspective serious. People that believe the Septuagint is a later formation that doesn't reflect an earlier formation are not in the scholastic world. They don't do that kind of research. They don't do the time of that comparison. It is typically found in the King James only crowd, and it's and, and naturally so. I can understand why. Um, anything that's a threat to their translation 1,600 years later is going to be a problem. But what we're going to look at next week, despite, or, or it might be the week after, excuse me, despite what somebody may think about the Septuagint, whether we have the initial form or very close to it or a change form that came after it, it's still a problem including in the circles of that King James onlyism or that TR onlyism, whether you're a mild or a cultic, it doesn't matter to me. You still have a problem in your English Bible, as well as in your comparison to how the writer of Hebrews utilize readings that are not consistent with the Hebrew readings. Um, so what we're saying here is we have to consider the evidence, not a presupposition opinion that came much, much, much later. What we're saying is we have to initiate these texts, look at them, compare them. And in doing so, you're going to find that Hebrews utilized Greek readings that do not agree with the Hebrew. And he made Christological defenses from Greek readings that differ from the Hebrew. And it shows in the English texts as well. And to answer your question, Nick, is there manuscript evidence for a wholesale BC LXX? We have multiple manuscripts that are older than the time that you would give the Septuagint. We have multiple manuscripts that come down to us through the Dead Sea Scrolls, especially of the Minor Prophets, even as of recent, looking at some of these texts, they are older than the Septuagint date that your crowd would give it. And in doing so, they're consistent with what we see the New Testament quoting from, and it's consistent with what we have in an LXX today. The point of the, the thing is we don't have the original LXX. We have transmitted forms of it, just like we do the New Testament. We don't have a new tech. We don't have a new text. We have a transmitted text. There are variants in it, just like there are variants in the New Testament. But the initial text readings in its form and what is being said in them is very close, just like our New Testament manuscripts are very close from places. Just recently, I was looking at something even from Dr. Maurice Robinson when I was visiting with him the other day with Elijah Hickson. Um, he had did a study recently, uh, or not recently, it's been a long time, but he never published it, on the, the readings of the papyri versus the Byzantine text, which he would stand behind. And he even demonstrated by disproving Bart Ehrman's theory that in the average, the papyri in the, in, in the formed Byzantine majority text that he utilizes, there's only a 93% difference on average with a height of 98% at times looking at the most famous papyri versus the majority Byzantine priority text. 
And what that means is the initial text didn't change as much as people want to make it to be. So even if the Septuagint AD is different from the Septuagint BD, there a BC, there's not going to be a major difference in it. So what the writers were quoting from isn't going to be majorly different 200 years later as it was 200 years before. That's the point that I'm making about the text. These things need to be considered. And we'll get into that more next week. Well, anyway, I appreciate the time. Appreciate everybody jumping on and spending time in this podcast. And I see there's other comments that have come in as well. I'll do my best to come around and answer those. But what we see here today is that the writer of Hebrews was certainly influenced by other writings outside of the Old Testament canonical text. He would not have seen them as inspired text as I demonstrated today. But naturally, we see formations and patterns and modern perspectives in his day of Melchizedek and looking at concepts of Messiah and looking into the elements of Christ and his being. It seems to me for sure that he was definitely influenced or utilizing elements of the, of, of the readings in the Septuagint apocryphal section, such as Sirach, wisdom of literature, uh, a wisdom of Solomon literature that we demonstrated, and even First and Second Maccabees, it would appear he did as well. So when we talk about the writer of Hebrews, he was well-read, he was educated, he was a historian, he was recognizing the Old Testament theology and Christ's fulfillment of those things. It's not something that we should ignore or, or even take some, some, uh, some element and say, well, we don't need that. They're not scripture. Well, there is something to be said. There is something that needs to be said about it because we should read them. And like I said, the early church had them in their liturgy. They recognize them as not canonical, but they did utilize them. Um, there's things that should be read in there that I think we could benefit from and learn history in them. Uh, we should not take it to the extent, as I said, the Roman Catholic church did is claiming them as canonical when they were never seen as canonical. So with that, I'll leave it here and then we'll join our next session talking about the variant forms of the translation and transmission between the Septuagint readings and the Greek readings he had versus our modern uh, text of the Old Testament we use today, the Masoretic text, looking at some of those difference, also looking how we utilize the Syrian Peshitta uh, forms of the Old Testament. It seems like he was influenced in places under more of the Syriac. Um, and how he utilized order and word forms different from the Septuagint in Hebrew. So we'll look at some of that as well in the next session, looking at Hebrews. Thank you for tuning in. Please like our channel, subscribe if you have not yet. Uh, click that little link over there that says subscribe. Hit the like button and make sure you get notification anytime we have our work go out there. Uh, we trust the Lord will be good to you this week. If you have any questions, leave them in the comments afterward, and I will do my best to come back and uh, answer those for you. Grace and peace to you.